0: they're standing and they're applauding that dramatic performance by James Orville and Christopher Dean
1: Alex Philadelphia. Uh-huh. it takes a lot to make him happy and he is clearly pleased she's up, she's moving nicely she's got it, uh, Yeah, has it stable, 132.67 has won at least the medal she's 0.24 up Yuki on the ice for the Gimler. the Gimlo scoping <laughs> Cindy Crawford. the golden goal
0: these golden games have their crowning moments. It is Off the Podium and Olympics podcast coming to you once again for another interview. So excited to bring you these interviews in the lead up to Beijing 2022. And of course coming soon, some interviews based on performances from Tokyo. So we're covering both sides of the Olympic spectrum in the preceding weeks. Today though... We have an athlete who won't be competing in beijing didn't compete in tokyo in fact competed at an olympic games 11 years ago and created history in doing so i'm speaking of sarah snowcell who to this day is still new zealand's only ever biathlete that is right she competed in the sport of biathlon back in vancouver and still holds that distinction as new zealand has never produced another biathlete this is a fascinating chat with sarah Because, as you'll learn, Sarah's not just, uh, I guess, your standard Kiwi athlete who grew up and was like, oh, Brew, I'm going to go into biathlon. Nothing of the sort. She is actually dual Canadian and New Zealander. So, hence why maybe I don't clearly make as fun of her accent as perhaps I would with another Kiwi uh, athlete. Any Kiwi athletes listening to the show, you're welcome to come on the show. Uh, Just uh, be prepared for typical Aussie-New Zealand banter. But it's a a fun, unique story here of Sarah's representation of New Zealand during the Olympics, kind of how she got into the sport, how she still so heavily involved in biathlon 11 years later and listen to a very interesting story when it comes to why she missed out for Sochi 2014 it had nothing to do with her ability it had to do with New Zealand which is a fun story in itself so without further ado here is our chat with New Zealand Olympic biathlete Sarah Snowsell. Super excited to welcome our next guest to Off the Podium today. We have spoken to numerous athletes from Canada, from Australia, from multiple sports across the Summer and Winter Olympics. We've even spoken to Americans. But one nation we have not spoken to is the great nation of new zealand and we are breaking that duck today and not only are we breaking that duck today for the great nation of new zealand we are also breaking the duck for the great sport of biathlon because joining us on the show today is new zealand's only ever competitor in the sport of biathlon at the olympic games did so back in 2010 and has taken that sport onto new heights by still working in the sport on a different capacity still to this day i am Thrilled to welcome to the show today, Sarah Snowsell. Sarah, first of all, welcome Off the Podium. It's a pleasure to chat to you.
1: Great to chat to you too, Ben. Thanks for having me.
0: Now, as everybody can tell, of course, with your strong New Zealand accent right now, uh, clearly uh, it's uh, something that must come up a lot, your time competing for New Zealand at the Olympics. You're you're like co-Kiwi-Canadian. How how do you sort of sell that? Canadiwi or Kiwiadian? What's the correct terminology today?
1: I think the most common term used is Kiniwi for uh, half Kiwi, half Canadian, (laughs) but yes, my my, I had a little bit of an accent when I was 12, and then I lost it quite quickly, which was quite sad, because I think it's a beautiful accent, the Kiwi accent.
0: <laughs> You're the first person to ever say that to an Australian. That's okay. Um, you know, you can uh, probably say that a lot in Canada, and all of a sudden, oh, you yeah, know, it's a good accent, whereas us, we're like, no, seriously, you don't need to say that. Um, but it's I'm fascinated to learn about your journey into the sport, because I, I read a story that essentially. At 13, you got injured doing gymnastics and then were handed a gun and then that's what took you on your journey to biathlon. Is it that simple, Sarah, that you get injured in gymnastics, here's a gun, and all of a sudden you're going to go to the Olympics when you're a little bit older?
1: Well, well, I wouldn't say it was a total simple process, but that is what happened. I, I fractured and displaced my elbow on the parallel bars. And then, um, mom and dad signed me up for, a kind of try biathlon night. And I had some girlfriends already doing it and, uh, yeah, I sh- loved shooting right away. And then it just kind of progressed from there. I'll say it really helps to start a sport when you have friends in it. And that was the main motivator right away. And then, uh, from there on was my career.
0: The rest is history. So was this in Canada? Was this in New Zealand? Because you've uh, sort of spread your time between the two countries a bit across your life, haven't you?
1: hmm Yeah. So we had just moved back to Canada. Uh, sorry. Yeah. Back to Canada from New Zealand after uh, living in Nelson for four years. And then we moved back to Canada and I broke myself and started bath almost right away. And then, yeah, moved back to New Zealand when I was 19. So it was a good stint in Canada where I started my biathlon career.
0: What's really interesting is going from a sport, gymnastics, then to going to biathlon. (laughs) It's not exactly the biggest connection. I mean, in Australia, we've talked to plenty of athletes, particularly, say, in aerials, who sort of get recruited from gymnastics across to freestyle skiing so it's not that uncommon here at least to have gymnasts go into winter sports but I don't really see the connection between uh, biathlon and gymnastics was gymnastics as a child was that sort of your sport that maybe if you had ambitions for the olympics that's where you were were looking at and before the injury how was the gymnastics gymnastics career going
1: Oh, well, uh, I wouldn't ever have called myself a gymnast as I was quite young. I would say like this happened when I was 12. So I was pretty little still. And um, yeah, I really enjoyed gymnastics. It was really fun at that age. And then after I fractured my elbow and it, it was quite a bad fracture i would say like it it still it's kind of stiffening i'm starting to get arthritis at 33 which is like (laughs) (laughs) mind-boggling but um we're lucky because we're in canmore alberta and that's where the 88 olympics were so it was quite an easy transition to start cross-country skiing and start biathlon because of the resources in the area Otherwise, I don't think it's a very common transition from gymnastics to <laughs> biathlon.
0: <laughs> don't, don't see the skills exactly transitioning too much from one sport. You're not, know, you know, doing the the beam while you're shooting stuff, things like that, right?
1: Right. Maybe the flexibility helped a wee bit.
0: <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe Simone Biles potentially on for Milan uh, 2026. You never know, right? <laughs> hey,
1: there we go. Put a rifle.
0: Yeah, exactly. So in terms of when you first go through this and you first see the sport, had you had much exposure to biathlon before that or or cross-country skiing, Nordic skiing at all? Was this something that outside of, uh, you know, come along with some friends have done it? Had you seen much of it growing up?
1: Well, I would say yes, because having been born in Banff and then mum and dad are quite, big, uh, outdoor enthusiasts. They were big cross-country skiers. We did it as we were kids in the Jackrabbit program out of Canmore and everything. So for sure, I started skiing really young, but then moving to New Zealand when you're nine, um, I was definitely more into the summer sports after that. Like I loved sailing and I was highland dancing a lot and, 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 well, kind of doing whatever kids do everything, yeah. especially kids like you never have your shoes on and you're just running around doing everything that you can. So that was a big point where I wasn't even near snow, really. And then when we moved back, it was what you have 13 months of winter in Canada a year. So you're just like <laughs> in it all the time. So it's hard to not get into cross-country skiing, on downhill skiing or anything like that once you're back in Canada.
0: Is it a case of when you sort of are exposed to those sports? I mean, as a child, is there sort of a big rivalry between the, the Nordic skiers and then, I guess, the, the other skiers? Like, I mean, kind of is there a rivalry between the, the downhillers and all the other ones? Or is it kind of like you, as much as the sports are different, you kind of can work in cahoots together in some way? Like, you're not going to be shunning the slalom kid just because you're a biathlon kid.
1: Well, (laughs) I would say with cross country and biathlon, we're definitely in cahoots together. I would say we all race biathlon or whoever does biathlon will typically race cross country races here and there, especially when you're younger. Um, But there's rivalry in anything. So even there, it's like uh, biathlon against cross country, like they can't or whatever they can't shoot or we have a rifle um but it's always fun and and like a a friendly rivalry at times but most of us are teammates with cross-country skiers so yeah we're friends now the downhill world and cross-country is a bit of a different story we don't have really anything to do with downhill skiers although now that I'm married to an ex- he raced fists like some race grew up racing um there is a rivalry it's like oh Uh the cross country nerds and yeah (laughs) it's horrible (laughs) 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 that was a rivalry i didn't even know about as a athlete
0: (laughs) which is fascinating because i mean obviously you've Spend, you know, born in Canada, Canada, New Zealand, so you're exposed to it more. But for most of our Australian listeners, we're obviously only ever exposed to skiing at the Winter Olympics. And then all of a sudden to us, some of us go, oh, well, downhill and cross country are the same thing, right? You're both on skis. So why all of a sudden you got it different? Or freestyle skiing is the same thing, right? You're on skis. But obviously there's vast differences between an aerial competition, a downhill competition, and a biathlon competition.
1: Absolutely. And I'm still learning. Like, I'll be like, oh... Let's look at that downhill skier. And then he's like, oh, no, he's racing a, I don't know, slalom or a GS or a super GM. <laughs> I'm like, right. There's like five different competitions just in <laughs> downhill.
0: <laughs> Which I the one time I ever – well, I've been to a ski resort twice and I won't tell about my time skiing because that's embarrassing. But the first time we went there, we went snowshoeing and didn't realize we had to go to the Nordic section of the course. So we're there like looking at these people coming down the hill, the chairlifts, all that kind of stuff. And they're like, yeah, no, you got to go about you know, a couple of k's down that way. You're in the wrong part. And then that's when I got to see cross country and all that for the first time in person. And to me, I'm like, That's my type of skiing. I'm not going flat down a hill, you know, 200 kilometers an hour. I just want to be straight up looking like I'm just going through the snow having fun. So uh, tell you what, if I ever got into skiing, I would be the Nordic man.
1: Hey, that is great to hear because it's usually the opposite. And most people, when they first start cross-country skiing, are not super suave looking on the snow, I'll say. They look a little (laughs) bit (laughs) Bambi-ish. It is an awkward sport to learn, but once you get it, I think everybody loves it, especially with the pandemic. People have, like, the uh, popularity of cross-country skiing has just skyrocketed, which is awesome.
0: When it comes to choosing between biathlon and cross-country, is it a simple case of if you're given a gun and you enjoy shooting, you can kind of combine the elements or is it just a case that cross-country skiers want to have something a little bit more difficult, like, like a challenge? So rather than just kind of cool, I'm just going to have a leisurely couple of case ski throughout the uh, woods today. I'm going to add the element of having to shoot at a target every now and then. I mean, kind of what brings about somebody picking up a gun and adding the shooting element to their cross-country skiing to take up biathlon?
1: Right. That's a good question. I guess the big difference for between biathlon and cross country is accessibility. So you can just pop your skis on and go on a golf course. If there's like three centimeters of snow, almost you're good to go. And you can just walk along on your skis. If you're just doing classic, cause there's the two classic and skate techniques. Um, and that's cross country skiing. So it's a lot more accessible. So that's one of the biggest differences. And then to do biathlon, you do need kind of a biathlon range. Um, so then that's accessibility as well. So we're super lucky in Canmore that we have a world-class range, as well as in Whistler has one as well. Silverstar has a range, you know, there's quite a few ranges kind of spotted all over Canada. And, um, and then it's the programming. So it's like, is there a program that someone can join? Is it easy to join? Do they have a rifle that people can rent, or do they have to buy a rifle? And you know, rifles start or around three thousand is very typical price for your biathlon rifle. So, yeah, I would say with biathlon, um, it's accessibility if the programming's there and then if the passion is there. So maybe it is a master's athlete that's been cross country skiing their whole life. And then they're like, Oh, or their kid gets into Babylon or they're like, Oh man, look at that cool person with the rifle on their back. I want to try it. And (laughs) yeah, sometimes that's intriguing for them as well.
0: To to me, it's very James Bond biathlon you know it's kind of yeah. like you you got to love a bond movie where they're skiing and shooting at each other right so to me uh, as a bond fan i feel that if uh you know i was to cross the nordic i would take up biathlon because all of a sudden you just put on the airpods and start listening to the ding ding, ding, ding and you just feel like james bond right so i'm sure give us give us the truth right now sarah that's why you did take it up you wanted to be james bond
1: no well, uh, yes of course i mean it is kind of the <laughs> more gangster of the sports of yeah. the sports especially
0: exactly that's the tagline that you use right uh over there in Canada for biathlon Canada the gangster of the sports well
1: yeah. you can yeah. use it
0: if you don't now you can steal it right now you're welcome it's to it. it I mean you, you came can. up with it so it's your term
1: yeah. <laughs> that's right Depends then now, we we're trying to um attract to the sport well, I guess
0: that's that's very true. I mean, you've got to get the kids in somehow, right? So, I mean, you know, maybe that's how you apply it there. So, when, when you first do it, when you're sort of getting there at, at, at a young age with your friends and everything, was it something that you just took to immediately? Was this something that you saw yourself going forward as a potential career or something that even if there was a dream for the Olympics that, hey, this could be a possibility and you just kept working your way up the ranks?
1: Yeah, pretty much. Like, I picked up the rifle and... Hit five for five and just was like, yeah, this is my jam. Mm-hmm. And um, just pretty much started right away. I was definitely weaker at the skiing. So shooting was my strong point for a really long time. And that might have been because of that four-year period in New Zealand. And then coming back and friends had been skiing that whole time. So I was I was definitely delayed in that progress. Um, and then... Um, yeah, the the shooting was definitely like my strong point and, and how I I don't know if I really went into it being like, I'm going to be an Olympian like that's a long time ago now, but I, I was always an active kid and always like with biathlon, it became almost full time automatically uh, with cross training in the summer and everything like that. So it was a big part of my life pretty much from the moment I picked up that rifle.
0: When it comes to what you're saying there in terms of uh, stronger skier, stronger shooter, w- when you are getting people into the sport, is it a easier case to get a cross-country skier to add the shooting element to it? Or is it a possibility to grab someone who's good at shooting and go, hey, you're bloody good at shooting. Uh, let's put some skis on you and teach you some skiing. Or is there kind of not really that much transition? It's more about the skiing first than the shooting comes afterwards.
1: Yeah, that's a great question. And actually, with my role now, we do a lot of analytics on like, what is the most important sport between the two or aspect of biathlon? And it it has shown that uh, being a stronger skier is where you get the higher performance from. And so you can take a cross country skier and give them a rifle. But Uh, you do still need to hit the target. (laughs) It's not totally skiing and then you can be a crap shoot and not hit anything and win. That doesn't happen. Um, But it is shown that, yeah, the stronger the skier you are, the more potential to have a higher performance.
0: How would you explain biathlon to, say, some of our Australian listeners who aren't overly familiar with it and do see it at the Olympics? I mean, kind of give us a brief overview of how it works and how does the shooting come into the, the skiing? So is it essentially like cross-country skiing where it's, it's a timed event, but then the shooting, does that bring you time penalties if you miss a target? Uh, is there points? I mean, how does that actually work, the shooting element in with the skiing element?
1: Yeah, so there's lots of um, different competitions in biathlon and different distances and different penalties depending on what race you're doing. But the main uh, gist of biathlon is you always start skiing and you always finish skiing. You're doing different loops um, and you're shooting in between. So, <laughs> if that helps, let's take, for example, the woman's seven and a half kilometer sprint. So, it's called a sprint, it's not like a hundred meter sprint, it is seven and a half kilometers and it's. Wow. So it's the longest sprint anybody would probably ever do. But uh, yeah, you do- Yeah, Andre grass, t-
0: come on, 200 meters, come on. You're going to do a seven and a half right. K before we, uh, you know, talk about your gold medal, mate. Come on. <laughs>
1: <laughs> right. I'd love to see that. Well, <laughs> maybe not, but yeah. So you do a two and a half K loop and then you come in and you shoot prone. So in Bathon, there's two shooting styles, which is lying down or standing up and lying down is called prone. Uh, standing is standing and we don't kneel or shoot from the hip or do a block one-handed side angle. Uh, it's just those two.
0: That's, that's <laughs> the new one coming to 2026, the gangster style as you're talking about, right?
1: That's right, yeah. Get more um, spectator interest, you know. Yep, yep. <laughs> so you, co- you do your 2.5K loop, you come and shoot prone. There's five targets in front of you. 50 meters away with open sights so there's no scopes or anything like that and you uh, are shooting at the prone target which is about the size of a golf ball Wow! Uh, but it looks bigger because you're actually shooting at the center of the target but if you watch biathlon you'll see that what you're actually seeing is the standing target which is about the size of I would say a average palm hand palm not palm tree, but um, okay. so you shoot five, and if you miss, and you know, out of your five bullets, if you miss two, three, one, nothing, whatever it is, the penalty you do is a hundred and fifty meter loop that you ski. Right. So then you go out, you do another two and a half kilometer loop, and then you come and shoot standing again. If you miss, it's a hundred and fifty meter penalty loop, and then you do your last two and a half k, and you finish. And that's the sprint race. And then there's multiple other races, but the one that's different than those is the individual, where instead of a ski penalty, every miss gets one minute added onto your time.
0: One minute! Wow, geez, bit of a bit yes, of a penalty.
1: <laughs> a little bit of a penalty. That's the precision shooters race, in a way, because it's quite long. Uh, for the women, it's 15 kilometers, and for the men, it's a 20k ski. Uh, but every miss, you get a minute added on, which is quite a huge penalty.
0: That's insane! Wow. How how do they term it as a seven point five? Why not a seven or an eight or a seven point six or a seven point, like seven point five is very specific that they go that way. Is it because it's half of fifteen? Is that essentially the methodology behind that? Or I mean, that's such a unique thing that it's seven and a half.
1: Yeah, I would say let's go with that it's half of 15, but actually, <laughs> I don't know. And I guess it divides nicely into three, whereas 7K, I don't know.
0: True, true. That's, yeah. Well, we, The research department here off the podium can mind, maybe dig that out uh, eventually with that. <laughs> so when it comes to the the training aspect, I mean, such a unique sport where obviously you've got two very individual sports for it. Uh, and kind of as you were saying about before, how you kind of can recruit people in that to it. But Such a physical aspect with the skiing, but then I can imagine the shooting, though, has to take up a a fair amount of time as well. I mean, when you were sort of competing at your peak, how would you sort of spread out the training? Was it more of a case of Monday skiing day, Tuesday shooting practice day, or is it kind of a combination of the both that you really had to get that practice of the precision shooting on the skis to really kind of get that shooting working rather than in a standing still target that you do at a shooting range?
1: Yeah. So, um, yeah, I guess any training plan, like you'll have our athlete has a yearly training plan that's divided into different segments or phases or whatever you, sport wants to call it. And with biathlon, now this is my plan. And I was a bit of a different athlete because I had a coach for a while. And then I was with, uh, I had a a Slovenian man making me a coach for a bit and then a Canadian for a little bit. So I was a little bit inconsistent in having like a training plan all the time. Um, But uh, you would usually start with this is the building phase at the beginning. So you're doing long runs, long roller skis, which roller skis if uh, the Australian crowd doesn't know is hilarious to wheeled roller blades with cross-country ski bindings on them, and you wear your cross-country ski boots and use your ski poles, and it's to simulate uh, cross-country skiing. And that's a big summer training uh, sport for biathlon
0: and cross-country. <laughs> when you
1: see it, it makes sense. But a lot of people, yeah, it's hard to. I'm picturing kind
0: of, it. I'm trying yeah. to imagine it. Yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> YouTube roller skiing, and
0: you'll, okay. you'll,
1: yeah. But uh, yeah, you're building and that's when you're really working on your precision as well. So you're having those long sessions at the range where you're doing fine aim, you know, you're really getting your sights lined up and you're working on your best shot possible. You're working on your trigger pull with any shooters in the crowd, you know, you're taking in your slack and you're really working on the fine aiming side of things with your trigger pull and with your sights and shooting and all of that. And then as you start getting through the season, you start combining them. So you start doing more combo training, which is what they call when you're shooting and skiing. Um, You do your combo training, and then you're also in the gym two or three times a week, um, adding in strength. And that starts at the beginning of the season as well. Um, And then as you get more and more later into the season, you start adding your intensity into things and then as you get into the season, race season, that's when you're kind of taking, you're not doing long workouts anymore. You're just doing shorter workouts focused on the racing.
0: Because I can imagine it's similar in many ways to distance runners, isn't it? Where you don't want to kind of burn yourself out. You don't want to, you know, a marathon runner's not going to run a 40K race every single week for practice, are they? So I can imagine, is that a similar thing for by athletes that you don't want to burn yourself out every single week and kind of peak yourself when you come to competitions.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And a big part of, uh, you know, sport, especially Olympian or Olympic athletes or hopefuls is the peaking and when they're going to peak and to actually get that peaking timeframe. Correct. is like an art, you know, you're really working on Do I race the full season do I take this weekend off to then have time for a good training block to then be able to peak at whatever Beijing on February 6th um you know in that race and yeah so I would say it but biathlon you do your competition probably maybe more than a marathon runner would do theirs because marathons are so long I thought my leg was going to fall off when I ran a marathon. It didn't, but it was horrible. Um, But uh, yeah, I would say we often ski, you know, three hour, a three hour ski or a two hour ski is very normal as like a Sunday kind of training block. But uh, you're not racing every single weekend of every single week uh, leading up to a season because then you'll just
0: burn out. How heavy is that gun that you are having to carry on your back through a race?
1: So it has to be minimum three and a half kg.
0: Wow. Okay. So is that a case of adding that into the gym that you've got to kind of be used to carrying this three and a half kilogram weapon on your back? I mean, because I can imagine <laughs> that again, those those pathetic cross country skiers don't have to worry about that, do they? <laughs>
1: Not, not pathetic they're amazing but
0: they- <laughs> <laughs> come on give it give, stick it into them you're on you're on off the podium now we don't care about those lot come on
1: <laughs> but they don't have a rifle on their back that's right yes exactly yeah, strength- weak
0: come on put it on on your back cross-country skiers those biathletes are stronger than you are <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, i didn't say that
0: No, no you (laughs) You can put that on me. That's okay. But, I mean, in in all seriousness, it's kind of – it's one of these things that, you know, anybody, an armchair expert like myself, can watch and go, ah, it's just cross-country with a gun on your back. But you don't, I guess, realise that that gun adds the weight. And then even something as silly as – The bullets, Uh, I mean, do you just have to have it preloaded beforehand? Is it a case of the gangster thing where you can kind of pull out the clip and go, you know, James Bond style? Because I can imagine it's all very rule-based where you're probably only allowed to have the amount of shots in your gun for the targets, I'm assuming, and not sneakily kind of rapid fire at the shots. Oh, look, I got it on my seventh shot.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, totally. And there are people watching to make sure that you're not shooting six or seven bullets but uh, yeah you have little clips that uh you carry on your rifle we don't have the cool like cross the body bullet holder like chewbacca we have like a <laughs> rifle and usually you'll carry you know you're say it's a sprint you're shoot, shooting twice so you'll, you'll carry two clips some will carry a spare clip uh or their coach will have one on the range if you crash and lose one and then you do have a spare bullet holder that you can fill. And at the end, they they take out your spares and count what extra bullets you have, uh, if you have those on there for safety. Is
0: the gun just a specific biathlon gun? Or is this kind of something that, say, shooters will use in in professional shooting? I mean, is it a specific gun to the sport of biathlon? Or can you equate it to a, another type of gun in a different shooting sport so to speak
1: right um the first thing i'll say to that and um, is my father always told me it's not a gun it's a rifle sarah a rifle. I don't
0: right okay <laughs> I'll, I don't I'll, I'll, I'll write that down for beijing rifle okay don't call them guns
1: <laughs> and i don't know the reason behind that actually i never but, yeah, it was always ingrained in my mind that it's a rifle, it's not a gun because, I don't know, guns are dangerous and a rifle is for sport.
0: Okay. I'm not sure. That makes sense. That's a good explanation, I, though. We can yeah, use that. Yeah, I just made yep. that up on
1: the spot, but I, no, it sounds No, we'll good. take
0: it. It works, yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Thank you. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, what was your question? What so I is about?
0: it a sort of just a specific rifle for a biathlon? Oh, right. Yeah.
1: Yes, uh, it is like it's a 22 caliber, so it's like a farm rifle that you would use to kill a rabbit or whatever on the farm. But it's made very specialty uh, for biathlon. So every athlete, or if you're on the World Cup, you have a custom made stock, and some are carbon fiber, some are wood. It's kind of personal preference and everything is getting custom molded to your hand or your cheek, you know, where you're, where you're resting your, your cheekbone on is, you know, that level is perfect for you. Um, the shoulder, like the butt plate that goes into your shoulder has like markings and perfect little do Higgies on it so that it goes to the same spot every single time. Cause that's the biggest thing is you zero your rifle in before the race. And then you just, go race. And if you keep changing your position, then your zeros off and you're not going to hit the target.
0: When it comes to getting to the targets during a race, is it a designated spot? So you will have spot 22 or is it like a triathlon where you just kind of just grab whatever you can on the way through? Like if you're first, you're going to get the best position essentially than you would if you were 21st.
1: It depends on the race. So in the sprint, you can, it's a free-for-all usually. Well, always prone is lane one to 15 and standing is lane 16 to 30 or 31, depending on the range. Um, And so you can kind of choose whatever mat you want to go to. And you're, you know, you're coming in, you're breathing hard, you're looking and you're like, okay, I got to get ready for shooting now. So you're looking down, you're choosing what, lane you want to go on checking out the wind making sure it's on the right target set to prone and then you're shooting the same with standing you can just choose where you want whereas in the pursuit where you're starting however you finished in the sprint um, so say you finished a minute behind the leader then you're starting a minute behind the leader then there's someone on the range lining you up for what target to shoot on
0: do you ever get tempted, if you are a minute behind the leader, to just go, oh, fuck this, pull the gun out, and just shoot the person in front of you so you've got one less person to beat?
1: No. No. Never, ever <laughs> be tempted to do that.
0: I'm just saying. I mean, you know, you can take that on board. There's another future event. Um, you know, evens the playing field out so those damn Europeans stop winning it. Come on. <laughs>
1: You no, know, we've been talking a lot about rifles and gun control here in North America. These days, it's
0: definitely
1: a number one priority.
0: <laughs> yes, yes, you can see the difference of cultures right now coming through uh, with that. You, you talk about when you sort of come up to that zone, though, when you when you're about to shoot, how. How does that go through the mind at that point? Cause obviously you're exerting yourself with the skiing and you've kind of got to get that down. Is it like the heart rate's got to go down kind of the concentration you're zoning in there on the shot. I mean, is that the most critical part of every biathlon race is that lead up into the phase where you will be shooting?
1: It is very important for sure. And that is probably the, you know, one of the things you train or focus on a lot is your range procedure. Uh, Yeah. I will say a lot of people have asked in the past, like, Oh, I heard that you breathe between heartbeats. That is not true. You, it's a, it, you're controlling your breathing uh, and you are practicing. So I, I always compare it to like the summer Olympics. If you, it's like training for the 10 meter diving, whatever event, and you need to, train for it and if you just go and try and do it you're gonna not do very well so it all comes down to training so you're working on your breathing rhythm and working on um you know you breathe breathe in halfway out aim and shoot and then breathe the rest of the way out and that's kind of how your breathing rhythm is going so
0: um yeah was there a point when you had gotten to a certain point, that's brought back to what we we're talking about before, that you thought the Olympics were a realistic goal. Was there kind of one moment uh, when you hit the tour in Europe where all of a sudden you were like, okay, well this is a possibility. I could be an Olympian.
1: Uh, you know, I it was kind of a funny transition. I I remember I never was able to call myself a athlete. Like I never identified as an athlete for the longest time. And I don't know why, I think it made it feel very professional and serious that I am an athlete, like that is what I do. And for some reason, I struggled with saying like, that's my full time job. Um, But yeah, I guess there was a point where when I qualified for the Olympics, 2010 Olympics, I was in Oberhof, Germany, and I didn't, I, 2010 Olympics were not, necessarily my goal because i was 21 i was still quite young but i was on the world cup and so it was a possibility and i don't think until i really got on to the world cup circuit and to that standard or level of competition did i realize oh okay maybe i could actually race at the olympics and then it was kind of a i felt like i was in a bit of a fog the whole time because I couldn't believe it had happened. And it happened so quickly that I was like in Europe, qualified for the Olympics. Then I went to the Olympics and then it, I went and continued the season, which I think a lot of people don't realize, or at least I didn't when I was younger, that there's still a whole season after the Olympics that the athletes go and finish.
0: Mm. Which it also is interesting that I believe, did you have the possibility to compete for either Canada or, or New Zealand and and you went the route of New Zealand what sort of was the process there and, and what made you choose New Zealand over Canada
1: yeah I uh so I went to I was racing for Canada until I was 19 and I raced at world junior championships or junior youth championships I don't remember if I was a youth or a junior anyway I think I was a youth uh for Canada and uh had a great result, and, and really enjoyed it. And then I went to uh, New Zealand when I was 19, like I said, and had a training period there in, during Canada's summer and my winter or New Zealand's winter. And it was, you know, I really wanted to visit friends and family also. So it was like a combined trip in that way. And while I was there, there was a IBU international biathlon union coach, like development coach there who, as well as the, you know, biathlon New Zealand was already a thing trying like getting going or I, I don't know how long it had actually been functioning for, but it was mixed in with modern pentathlon in New Zealand. Wow. It might okay. be. Yeah, I'm not, yeah. I'm not really sure. I think because it's a multi-sport thing, they put them together, but yeah. And so this coach um, was from the IBU and, was like you know you could have an opportunity to go to Europe and do this and and I I just said okay and and decided to switch nations and I I'm super proud to have raced for New Zealand uh it you know there was not just the opportunity to go to Europe right away um you know in Canada there's a deeper competition field and you know you're qualifying for things and teams and things like that. Whereas this was like, yeah, you can go and go right away uh, and see how you do on the international stage. Uh, It was also intriguing to be one of their first or their first female biathlete was quite great. And then I think I still had that patriotism for being a Kiwi, like having grown up there. And that was pretty exciting. And A couple new opportunities there as well. So there was a bunch of things that motivated me. I Also, my father was quite shocked when I <laughs> came home and said, I'm racing for New Zealand now. And he was like, oh, <laughs> I thought you were going to do Canadian trials. And I was like, oh, well, not <laughs> anymore.
0: <laughs> was it a case, though, that had you stayed competing for Canada, you also would have made the team? Or is it a different criteria, as you're saying, because it's more of an in-depth field that maybe you wouldn't have made the cut for Vancouver?
1: Yeah, it's definitely two different ball games and two different uh, qualification systems and, and governing bodies and everything. So who knows um, what would have happened. It's funny, the Canadian system for qualifying is they have different um, qualification standards. I don't know what they were for 2010, but going into Beijing, uh, coming up, it's like you could have started uh, qualifying last year, last season with top 16s. And then it's kind of a ranking system. And if you don't qualify, if not enough people, athletes qualify under that, then you can have a closed race in Canada and choose the team. So no matter what, we will send four women and four men. Whereas New Zealand's qualification was there was a standard that you had to meet. And so in a way, it it wasn't more difficult, but, the, it, you know, you had to meet this standard for New Zealand, which I forget what it was now. <laughs> and the moment it was such a big deal. And now I'm like, oh, was it top? I don't know, 50% of the field or what was it? But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I guess I would say uh, there's no saying what would have happened at all if I would have made the Canadian team or not. To uh, put it knows. into
0: context, though, I mean, kind of as you were saying about that first female biathlete from New Zealand, I mean, to this day, you are New Zealand's only ever biathlete to compete at an Olympic Games, which I mean, in itself, that, that's got a great ring to it. But even just in that sense of pride you're saying you have for, for being a Kiwi, I mean, that, that's that must be a pretty big deal, Sarah, to kind of have that you still are the only one, but you will always be the first biathlete to ever compete for New Zealand at an Olympic Games. Yeah, it's cool. <laughs> <laughs> it's flat, flat bang on the, on the Twitter profile or, the, or sort of the, the resume there. But it's also, I think, interesting too just to compare, like, just the level that uh, it comes to the two nations when it comes to our Winter Games. I mean – in Vancouver, New Zealand sent 16 athletes to the Olympics, whereas Canada obviously, I mean, home games, they've obviously got some more, but 206 athletes. So that kind of, you know, covers the difference there. But, I mean, even on a team of 16, I can imagine that the New Zealand Olympic team's quite close-knit going over to vancouver even if there's maybe rivalries between the sports but i mean i can't imagine 16 people i mean you've got more people on that on the all blacks basically going off to a world cup so i mean was it sort of a tight knit little community when you all hit on that plane over to vancouver ahead of the olympics
1: yeah you know my uh experience with the vancouver olympics were a bit i would say different because i am half canadian and so I, you know, my mom and dad were volunteers. My, my mom was a part of the finish line crew and my dad was uh, like the assistant chief of stadium or something like that. My uncle and aunt lived in Whistler. So I had this family there as well. And I went from Calgary to Vancouver. That was my big arrival. Uh, so <laughs> I didn't have this experience where I boarded the plane and flew, you know, there was a send off and flew whatever, 14 hours and then arrived. And, and sadly, I, right before the Olympics, I got food poisoning in Italy and ended up in the merge. And then I got sick when I got back to Canada. So I arrived late and you know, they, it was beautiful. They, there's a three of uh, my teammates and one of the team managers, when you were, when I arrived did the haka as a greeting and it was it was amazing and uh but I was alone also so you know it's kind of just me and this um, amazing arrival greeting it was it was great and then as a, a lot of the athletes in on the New Zealand winter team are individuals uh we don't have a or we didn't or I'm not sure if New Zealand ever has had a women's or men's hockey team at the Olympics. Uh,
0: uh, you'd probably have to go back to the, fi- I, yeah, I mean, maybe back a long time ago. I mean, I know Australia yeah. did it in like the 50s, but um, right. so I don't know if New Zealand did. So you've, I can I tell you, I can it. I can gladly tell you, you've mm-hmm. had a curling team at the Olympics. So uh, 2006. So there you Amazing. go. There's a team sport you've had. <laughs>
1: Yeah, so I knew our cross-country skiers and we were quite knit from uh, quite close from training at the cross-country at the snow farm in New Zealand. And so I knew them and, and you know, Mitchie Gregg, who is a ski cross athlete. We actually went to university together after the Olympics. I wow. uh, got to know her very well and she's a very close friend of mine now. And so, yeah, you, you do get to know them, but I would say it was a different camaraderie because we're all single athlete like individual athletes in a way working uh training in our individual sports with our own individual schedules so it was hard to really have that bonding and and have those moments with athletes um because we all kind of had our own or this is how I feel about mine I had my own kind of biathlon family that was there as well so I was also seeing a lot of them but I do wish that I'd had I don't know, a bit more focus. I was in such a fog at those Olympics because it was such an unexpected, amazing opportunity that I wish I had really, you know, connected more with some of my teammates there.
0: Before I follow up on that, I'll just say New Zealand has not competed at the Winter Olympics in uh, ice hockey, unfortunately. Australia did in 1960, So there's those playing at home. Um, Did you do the whole opening ceremony though? Did you get the the chance? Were you out there marching or was it a case of your competition was a little bit too close to the opening ceremony? So you skipped it.
1: It was the hardest decision. I think I've ever made to not go to the opening ceremonies. And that was because our village, we were in Whistler. So it was two, it was over two hours, I think, to get to the, Opening ceremonies. And my race, I think, started at either nine or 10 a.m. the next morning. We were the very first competition. And so the bus, I don't think, got home till like two, two thirty in the morning from the opening ceremonies. And I just I had an internal battle where it was like, okay, am am I realistically gonna get a medal? No. I (laughs) would was not like looking there was (laughs) that was not a thing um but what how do i feel as an athlete i'm here to compete going to those opening ceremonies and not giving my race the 100 focus and the reason i'm there so i decided not to go and that was really hard. And I, I kind of, I still don't know if I made the right decision, but uh, I went to the closing ceremonies and that was
0: very cool. That's good. You got to see Nickelback. So that's a positive. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, exactly. That's, that's why you go into the closing. I mean, I always find that fascinating because, you know, a lot of our guests on the show, we, we talk a lot about the Olympic experience outside of course, the, the competition. And it is often a case, particularly at say a first Olympics, that maybe it's not quite that experience thinking that it would be maybe if you go to a second or a third one because as you said you're focused you're there as an athlete as much as it's great to be in the Olympics you still want to compete and do your best and as someone who again as I say in all these interviews now has failed in my career to become an Olympian but I, I would always look at these stories where they would say oh the swimmers aren't in the opening ceremony because they're competing in the first thing in the morning I'd be like fuck that I'm still going I'll get two hours sleep I want that experience you know but again easy for me to say uh, on that <laughs> so but I mean it's did you kind of get you said you're in a bit of a fog during the games, but was there any moment where you kind of just stopped and kind of took in that experience that you're an Olympian?
1: Yeah, for sure. There was moments, you know, when you, know, you get to go watch the downhill or you get to go and watch the luge or bobsled and you're right there really close. And it's like almost it felt more in those moments that I was watching other athletes compete, I was like, Oh wow. Like, or even in the food court, I remember, um, one of the American bobsled, I forget who it was. Giant man was getting his lunch. And I was like, Oh my goodness. <laughs> I've never seen a human that big. And that was like, it was cool to be surrounded by all these, uh, amazing athletes and teams and but as soon as you're on your own race course you're just doing your job you know it shouldn't be foreign it should you've already done a test event at that venue because there's always a test event before typically except for beijing because it was canceled because of the pandemic so going into beijing our athletes and a lot of teams i don't know if any teams apart from maybe the chinese team will have skied on the race course so uh That'll be wild, but typically there's always a test event before. So you've got you've already done it. You've got those first race jitters out, and uh, now you're just doing your job.
0: When it comes to courses, is there certain types of courses that, say, are suited to certain type of biathletes? I mean, is there more of a focus on, I don't know, certain sections of a course in those loops that you're talking about? Like, I mean, do they add elements of, uh, you know, steep hills and downhill bits and uphill bits. I mean, kind of what What to you as a biathlete is a course that suits your style best and, and was the one at Whistler, one that suited your style as a biathlete?
1: Yeah, I would say uh, no. Whistler was not my course. I was actually quite intimidated of Whistler. I had I, I'd stopped one biathlon race in my life, and that was at Whistler because of the back injury I had. And so I went into the Olympics very nervous of failing again. And uh, it was really a bad way to approach my races, looking back at it, because I was nervous before even starting that I was gonna have to stop because of my back injury, even though it was just my past experience. Also Whistler, you know, I would say I really enjoy uh, more climbing, like I, I like more up like harder uphills and and quite fast downhills versus flats because I just didn't have the power on the flats. Whereas a lot of some athletes have that beautiful, long, powerful glide and, and they're really strong. So, yeah, for sure, there's different courses that athletes do well on and not as well. And I feel like Whistler was maybe not my um, best course to really excel
0: (laughs) did did you set yourself a goal I mean you were obviously saying before that realistically you didn't think you could get a medal but I mean in such a a big field you know close to 90 competitors in both the events you're on I mean do you just set yourself a goal of don't want to be last I want to be in the top 80 top 70 or is it a is it a time thing kind of what was your goal and how did you feel you went to the goals that you maybe did set yourself
1: yeah, so I've, I I it's funny like these big things happen to you that you're going to remember for the rest of your life and then you forget it. But uh I would say my goal was to make the pursuit which is top 60 and my my positioning goal I think I wish I could remember but I think it was, you know, to be at least top 40 uh, as my my best result in a world cup was 43rd which had happened that season, but then I got that food poisoning and then I got sick and that kind of all compounded to a poor result. But, um, yeah, top 60 was, I think, you know, to make a pursuit was a big part of my dream as an athlete, I guess, Uh, which is a very simple goal for some teams, of course, like their goals to get first, So it's all perspective and it's all different and it all depends on the athlete situation. Uh, but I think I got 82nd twice and or something like around there and I was disappointed for sure. Like I, I didn't perform how I wanted to. Um, but again, I was, I was, I was so, uh, I guess uh shock not shocked but it was such a surprise to be at 20 not a surprise it was just so incredible to be at the olympics um and then to to be racing that I, I honestly wish i had been able to go to 2014 to then really compete like 2010 was my development olympics and then 2014 was where i was hoping to really compete And I feel like I learned a lot at the 2010 Olympics and then it didn't transition to the 2014.
0: Before I ask about sort of what happened in the lead up to to Sochi, um, I mean, two things on that. First of all, you can always say that, Sarah, you set a New Zealand record at the Olympics by finishing uh, 81st, 82nd. I mean, no one's ever (laughs) gone better. So, you know, you still hold that record. So there you go. And also, I guess, too, uh, I mean as close to a home Olympics, I mean, it is still technically a home Olympics for you being sort of, uh, you know, from both countries. I mean, I I doubt we're ever going to see Queenstown, you know, 2034, maybe never say never, but uh, it's kind of one of these things that, you know, you still technically get to compete at a home Olympics, even though you're maybe not competing for the home country.
1: Totally. Yeah. I am, I'm very proud. And I, you know, that won't be, that will never be taken away. Like you said, it is very, um, I don't know. It, it's very cool. And I am very proud and I'm proud that I was there and I'm proud that I competed, uh, and, but the competitions didn't go as planned, but we've seen that for even the top athletes, like Simone Biles, you know, she, that's not how she planned her Olympics to be. And that that's what happened. And that is also just fine.
0: In terms of actually, before I follow up there with Sochi, uh, we, we've had plenty of, of winter athletes on the show. And I always love kind of because winter, winter sports are obviously, a lot of them are very much dominated by the One Nation. We had Illusius on recently. And of course it was like, you know, do you just hate the Germans winning everything all the time? I mean, is it a case in, in biathlon? It's like, oh, those Norwegians, like just to stop it. Like, I mean, we saw recently in Tokyo, they're starting to take over sprinting now and triathlon, like they're taking over the world. So, I mean, God, do you just get frustrated at watching Norwegians be so good at biathlon and all these sports? And how can we stop the Norwegians, Sarah? Come on.
1: Well, that's a good question. They are amazing, and uh, they're so strong. It's it's very impressive, and they dress very well. They're very Mm. trendy people. I will say that I'm also jealous of their style, not just their strength. Yeah. Yeah, they're definitely a powerhouse. There's a lot of powerhouses in biathlon, but Norway is the one that always, like, it's like,
0: well, yes, there they are. Is that a case of that? countries like Canada or other countries are always trying to recruit Norwegian coaches because like they're doing something right. There's something in the water or the Norwegians are very protective of their amazingness in sports like biathlon where they're like, no, we're we're not leaving Norway. Uh, You can't have our coaches.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Well, maybe uh, that's what we need to do, but you know, we have incredible coaches all over the world that are like moving from team to team. And the thing that's, I didn't really recognize until, I started on the world cup is you know one coach will be with germany and then two years later they're with france and two years later they're with norway and two then china and then russia so some of these high performance coaches are like moving around with all the teams and passing on their expertise or or whatever training all these athletes so it's intriguing, but I I would say that a lot of teams wouldn't say no to a Norwegian coach coming on to their crew.
0: <laughs> if any Norwegian coaches are listening, uh, you know, if you, you need a job. Um, so after Vancouver ends, then uh, obviously the goal, as you're saying, is to kind of go back again in 2014 and sort of uh, take that experience and move forward. You ultimately didn't go to Sochi. Sort of what happened between the end of the Olympics in 2010 and then the next Olympics in 2014?
1: So I had a bit of a moment where I was like, I don't know what I'm doing with my life. Is this really what I want to do? Uh, and I ski patrolled at Lake Louise Ski Field for a
0: little wow, bit. Wow, nice. Uh,
1: yeah, that was awesome. And The I shooting also to- helped,
0: clearly, you know, <laughs> stopping all those rowdy people out that way, sure. <laughs> that's right.
1: That's right. Um, I went to university at Queenstown Resort College in Queenstown, and did adventure and management while training full-time so I guess that's how how it went I biathlon the season finished after 2010 I moved back to New Zealand and went to university and still trained full-time and did that season the 2011 2010-2011 season in Europe and then uh, yeah had a little bit of a you know, am I, is this what I want to do with my life after university and did a bit of ski patrolling at Lake Louise and went to world champs for biathlon and cross country. So I was still training full time, but trying to figure out my life, I guess, in a way, which a lot of athletes go through, especially when they're 18 and then post every Olympics. Um, I would say there's always some internal conversation going on is do I want to keep going for another four years? And so by that time, it was now 2012. And I was like, yeah, I do want to um, keep competing. And so I moved to Switzerland and raced uh, and trained with the uh, Swiss girls there in uh, Oberengadin in St. Moritz area for a year. And that was an amazing experience. The one thing I'll say about my biathlon career is um, it probably wasn't the best for performance, how I did it but it was amazing for uh, character building and, and life experience, like right. being able to live in Switzerland for the year. And then I moved to Italy for a year after that. Wow. And uh, it was really cool. And, you know, it, it, New Zealand switching to race for New Zealand brought those amazing opportunities and, and training in Switzerland, like not many people get to say that they got to do that. And it was very cool. Uh, I don't know how legal it was with, you know, switching passports, having to and going to England and switching and going back. <laughs> you know, that was nah. a bit of a James Bond moment as well. <laughs> Again,
0: it's just, we're just learning you just really are James Bond here. It's all good. <laughs>
1: yeah, pretty much. <laughs> and then um, for the Olympics, I uh, the our um, New Zealand Olympic Committee changed the biathlon qualification and I... I Again, wish I could remember if it was a percentage or a placing that I needed, and I didn't make it. So I made the international standard to be able to race at Sochi, but I didn't make the New Zealand Olympic Committee qualification standard um so I didn't get to go how, how how does that work
0: you've you've had one athlete in the entire history of a country go to an olympics you've made the international standard but do New Zealand just get cocky after 2010 and go well we nearly got top 80s so and now we're gonna have to put this a little bit higher now for Sarah moving forward to Sochi." I mean that that to me <laughs> sounds a bit strange that if you can make the international one but you're not at New Zealand's standard
1: you know, it's it's common. Most sport, most countries, their qualification standard is a lot harder than the IOC standard wow. than the International Olympic Committee. And some teams, you know, won't send a full team, uh, even though their athletes have made the IOC standard. They won't send a full team uh, if they don't make their own federation standard
0: we we had controversy over that in Pyongchang with our uh, female bobsled team it was a very similar mm-hmm. situation they made the standard but the aoc uh, it wasn't even the aoc sorry it was a uh, bobsled australia were basically like no this isn't good enough for us so there was a lot of controversy around that so it's interesting it's it's very sort of fascinating and it's just kind of particularly and this is not me trying to take the piss out of new zealand something that i enjoy doing but it's just kind of it's it's interesting that a a country that's had like not much history in a sport you know, they've got you their only athlete, wouldn't at least maybe go, Okay, well, we know you're good. You've been to an Olympics before, so we're kind of just, you know, scoot around the the edges a little bit and we'll let you go. Was it how disappointing was that to kind of be at an international standard, but not at that standard where you could get on that plane to Sochi and compete at a second Olympics?
1: Um Yeah. It was super disappointing. You know, it was, uh, I, that was the Olympics I'd been training for. Like I said, the 2010 Olympics were amazing. A little bit of a bonus Olympics, if that's what you want to call it. Um, And then 2014 was the big goal and the big plan. That was a part of the plan. Um, uh, Even though maybe those four years before it didn't show it (laughs) now that I think about it, but it was always, the goal was 2014. Um, And it was disappointing but, you know, I, I, now that I'm working, I, like, I'm the High Performance Coordinator for Bathlawn Canada, and I'm working within this world now, uh, working with the COC and working with Bathlon Canada on creating these um, qualification standards. And it all depends on your nation's, you know, approach to the Olympics. Do you want to send tourist athletes or do you want to send performing athletes and do you want a medal or do you just want a top 80? And so that's where New Zealand is. We see them in the Summer Olympics. It's such a strong nation, especially for the size of it. And they're doing so well. And that's the mental approach, or at least the approach to the Olympics is we don't want to send, you know, necessarily athletes that are are just there to be there. We want to send athletes that are there to compete and to perform and so that's where that comes from and in the moment I didn't understand and it was really hard but now what are we seven years later and I'm in this different role within an NSO and I'm like okay I, I see where they're coming from <laughs> as an athlete you don't but once you're in this <laughs> administration world Uh, you're like, aha, yes, I kind of understand.
0: Did you have any desire after that uh, situation to push forward for for 2018? Did you sort of continue on or was that kind of back to what you're saying about working out what you want to do as an athlete and do I want to go through this for another four years?
1: Yeah, I would say um, there were a couple comments people made that were like, why are you doing it? Why are you still here? And those I think hit me really hard and i retired and it i think i was ready as well because i you know i'd been i was alone in europe i had trained with the or I traveled with the ukraine team for two years um my first couple years and then i you know kind of hooked on with the british team for a wee bit and then i i didn't have a coach for a little bit and i was hiring random coaches and trying to get my skis waxed i had the polish team waxing my skis for a while and then i was you know training with the swiss team but I was, you know, my parents came and my dad zeroed me on the range at one of my World Cups. And so I was a very, you know, mishmash of things. And I was getting a little bit tired of the begging for funding, you know, like for support and not being able to support myself and, and not having that funding. And it was really hard as well. So I think I retired at a good time for me like especially mentally i was quite over it and um, and i yeah, like i couldn't train or do a sport or anything by myself for like 4 years after i retired i was like so unmotivated and I think that's a good sign that it was a good time to retire.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Started taking up team sports and trying to get onto that New Zealand ice hockey team for uh <laughs>
1: That's New yeah. ice hockey team. We're gonna get it going.
0: Exactly, exactly. Uh, so from that transition point then, was it always a case of um, wanting to get into where you are right now? I mean, sort of how do you go from kind of competing at that level to, I guess, transitioning into the, the office role, the admin role, sort of that biathlon and this time in Canada, obviously, and, you know, putting putting the maple leaf back on rather than the silver fern.
1: Yeah, so then I I moved home, I needed that time to just be with family. And I realized I'd been away from family for seven years, you know, with little snippets here and there. And I was noticing changes every time I came home, you know, in 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 my family and in my friends that I was missing, you know, big things and, and those family celebrations. And so I decided, yeah, to come back home. And I was here I was in Canada for a little bit, and then I went to Nicaragua. <laughs> so that do. didn't last that yep. long, <laughs> as you
0: do.
1: <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> and, and um, yeah, and then I started pursuing a career in the ski guiding industry. So there's that downhill skiing side of things, uh, coming in. Going and to,
0: and, uh, to the dark side.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and so I did um, – I pursued the guiding side. I became a hiking guide with the Canadian Mountain Guides Association, and then just,, uh, yeah, and then, you know, as life goes on, it's just been a good transition. And I met my husband uh, at a backcountry lodge ski touring, you know, a very Canadian story, I guess. <laughs> and, um, yeah, and we got married. And then I was like, oh, maybe I should think about getting a bit of a uh, actual career um where I guess settled down is a little bit of a term people use and I saw yep. the posting from my performance and office coordinator with of Biathlon Canada and yeah it's been quite the transition I'd never had an office job before but it used my adventure tourism degree quite well uh, with my sporting background in biathlon and it just seemed like a good transition.
0: And so what then does your role in Tale, how would you describe it uh, to someone like me who probably has never even heard of a, a high performance uh, sort of role <laughs> at Biathlon Canada until only a couple of months ago?
1: Right. So, my role, uh, I'm, too, I'm like the biathlon of the administration. There's two different roles <laughs> in my job
0: <laughs> lots of shooting people, basically, you're saying. <laughs>
1: So I've got the high performance side where I am doing all the logistics and planning, um, for the senior, for any European tour, uh, as well as, uh, the U24 and U20 development teams here in Canada. So any logistics to do with that, um, and you know, all of the travel, anything to do with registration and getting them to, uh, Europe. And then now with the Olympics, Um, I'm the team leader for the Beijing Olympics, which is great. Um, And then, which sadly I won't get to go to, or I'm actually finishing my role with Bath on Canada in three weeks here, going on a one-year maternity leave because we're having a little baby.
0: Well, congratulations (laughs) to that, first of all. I was going to say, I mean, disappointed you don't get to go to the Olympics, but I mean, I guess if you're not going to go to the Olympics, that's a pretty good reason not to go to the Olympics, right? Mm
1: -hmm. So we'll be watching the Olympics from home. Um, which is, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's been quite the two years where I've really learned about this role and that whole high performance side, which I did for myself as an athlete and now doing it for multiple teams on the Canadian, you know, you've got the junior youth, the IBU, and then the world cup teams, as well as our, our university teams go. Um, so that's been really cool. And then I do the, all the admin. So that's the membership stuff and, uh ship targets across North America and uh <laughs> and all the national you know all our big paperworks and carding with, with, uh, the Canadian sport Canada and everything like that.
0: (laughs) Wow. All that fun stuff we all dream about, right? Uh, kind of all that sort of thing. So how then in the lead up to Beijing, how, how's Canada tracking when it comes to, uh, biathlon? Will it be a case of a certain amount of athletes you're allowed to send? I mean, is still qualification going on kind of, uh, what, what's happens between now and the Olympics?
1: (laughs) We, uh, yeah, our team is awesome. I'm super excited to, um, be a part of the program going into Beijing. We have, uh, well, most likely it all depends on the qualification and that's still ongoing, but we'll most likely send four women and four men and, uh, that, you know, they can qualify all the way till January 17th. And I think the cutoff for naming teams is like the 19th or something of January. So, they have right to the very last minute to qualify. Um, and we have, yeah, yeah, really strong team. We have Emma Lunder is had three top tens last season. We've got Christian Gao and the Gao brothers, Scott as well. You know, super strong, really good results. Top, you know, top 16s at world championships. They have a possibility of getting a medal, which is amazing and then we have our younger part of the team and they're 23 years old and also up there with those guys so i think going into the beijing olympics the canadian team it's a very real possibility of getting a medal
0: because it's one of these things i had to look this up i mean again as an australian uh you know you think of canada you think of esteemed winter nations dominate sports win medals and everything but uh only the two gold and a bronze in the sport of biathlon from uh, from Miriam way back in 92 and 94. So it's been a, a while since Canada's meddled in biathlon. So, I mean, it would be great, I can imagine, to see this drought broken uh, in the Olympics in a few months.
1: Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, I'm excited too. And I'm hoping we'll also have the first male biathlete at the Olympics for New Zealand, um, ah. Campbell is a super strong young athlete coming up and he he's very strong. like great. I, I really am excited to watch his career and I really hope that he's um, yeah working towards Beijing.
0: Do you have a lot to do still at all with New Zealand and sort of any of their winter programs? I mean, obviously they got a couple of medals in Pyeongchang, so I can imagine it sort of excited uh, New Zealand a little bit more for the winter sports. It did great deals for Australia, of course, when we started winning medals. So, I mean, is it something you still stay in touch with in New Zealand and help them out where possible?
1: I don't. And... I I wish I did and I miss them so much uh, but I think with the babe coming up and uh, I would really like to move back to New Zealand for for a long period of time and so as soon as we're back in New Zealand that would definitely be a priority to, to get back up to the snow farm and reconnect with that community because it, it's small but mighty and uh, it's if anybody's in New Zealand and you get a chance to go to the snow farm it's uh, kind of a beautiful winter wonderland and unexpected wonderland, I would say. So go give it a look and have fun because it's it's pretty cool up there.
0: The one thing I, I loved about when I lived in New Zealand is that, you know, living in Invercargill, I, I've grown up my entire life in Hobart, the most southern city you could say in Australia. Then Invercargill is even further south if you look at a map. And I mean, I spent 31 years of my life in Hobart, woke up to snow once. It lasted for about an hour and then it disappeared. We'd get snow on our mountain, but that was it. I was in Invercargill for not even a year and we got snow basically for two days. And I'm that Australian who is like obsessed with snow. When I lived in Canada and it snowed, I was like a kid on you know, a candy store and everyone was complaining. So to me, snow is amazing. But um, I yeah, I, it's kind of interesting being in New Zealand and Queenstown, I mean, I can imagine when you're studying, if you're doing that kind of degree, I mean, are you just using that as an excuse to go bungee jumping and and kind of downhill skiing, all that kind of stuff all the time? Because it's part of what you're studying?
1: Pretty much. Yeah. It was was the perfect, perfect schooling. We just did pretty fun. Like we did do bungee jumping and canyon swinging and we went on week trips and did backcountry stuff. And uh, it was, you know, river surfing. I don't know. It was a very cool program. And I, (laughs) I think if anybody's unsure what to do, go do that because it's, it's (laughs) combines education with a lot of fun.
0: Now, now the question I have to ask and the last question I'll ask when you were last there, did Fergburger exist in Queenstown?
1: It did, of course.
0: Now, how many yeah. days would you line up around the block to get that good burger? Because it was always a long wait, wasn't it, to try and get your Ferg burger?
1: <laughs> oh, you know what? From what I've heard, we went we went back to New Zealand two years ago and I could not believe the change to Queenstown. And the lineup for Ferg burger was I was like, I don't remember it being like that. And now there's the Ferg Bakery, I yep. think, right now. Oh, man, those pies. I would die yep. for a pie here in Canada right now. Yeah, because it's not anyway. a thing
0: that pies just don't exist in the same capacity in North America, do they? they, they it's weird how it's not a thing there.
1: I know it should be because they're so hearty and delicious. You think it'd yeah. be the perfect après ski snack, and it's yeah. People died, and they just haven't taken. We need a Jimmy's pies, and then mm. we can just now down on those babies all the time
0: cookie time do you miss cookie time what about those uh you know earlier was it like but i think between eight and nine a.m you'd have the one dollar cookie time uh coffee with a cookie on top i mean that was all you needed
1: (laughs) that was all you needed and when they opened the cookie time shop in queenstown it was like everyone got a free cookie on the first day the lineup was literally three times around queenstown and it was amazing (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh oh, beautiful, beautiful part of New Zealand and a beautiful part of the world. I mean, flying in and out of Queenstown is an experience in itself whenever you go into the airport. It's just stunning the the, the absolute views you get there. And I actually you are talking when you were about the the roller skis before. I'm thinking around like the Devil's staircase that you could kind of just go around those roads in the in the lead up to Queenstown. I mean I remember having to drive that from Invercargill all the time. That'd be fun to ski around. It would be good practice. Sure. It
1: would be great. I did used to um roller ski around New Zealand and no one knew what I was doing, but I'd always hitchhike <laughs> back down and it was always fun chatting with whoever I was hitchhiking with. <laughs> like, I can imagine it's
0: a fun thing that you can just bring up in conversation too. And then all of a sudden I can imagine too if it comes up that you're an Olympian, you're like, oh, yeah, I represented new Like people hear your accent, like, oh, cool, great, Canada. But no, no, New Zealand Olympic athlete. I mean, that must be a fun little thing to pull out at a night out on the town sometimes.
1: Yeah, at the beginning, I it would come out every now and then. But now it's, it's like doesn't come up as often. I will say hitchhiking with a rifle is a little more exciting, but everyone just <laughs> tell them it's a good car. And they're good to go or a banjo and they're fine. But yeah, that's always a fun little mission.
0: <laughs> wow. Jeez. You don't think about those things sometimes when you're uh, you're hitchhiking around there. Sarah, before I let you go, uh, any anything that you want to sort of plug right now? People want to sort of stay in touch with Biathlon Canada or any sort of personal Instagram, t- Twitter, social media, anything that you want to give a shout out now for people to either follow you or, or follow Biathlon in Canada? Uh.
1: Yeah, like Biathlon Canada, following our Instagram, I think it's at Biathlon Canada official. And, uh, you know, that would be a great place to support our athletes and and uh, follow them there. I honestly am so bad with the social media now that I don't even know what my handle would be. So I'm I not going to I did find share your Twitter
0: off. from, it uh, doesn't look like it's been updated since 2016. yeah so, um, <laughs> Might, You can still there if you want to use it. I guess you just have to maybe update it slightly.
1: <laughs> Great. Okay. Well, you know, I'll, I'll pop back on the tweets there. I'm
0: seeing um, your last tweet. Uh, I just ran over a squirrel on my road bike. It survived but scared the living bejesus out of me. Hashtag mountain life uh, from <laughs> July 29, <yeah>. 2016.
1: <laughs> I remember that. It was horrible. The squirrel, I hit it with both my wheels and then it still ran off the track. I don't know. Wow. It was a... Amazing squirrel. Um, but no, I would like to say a hello and a big love to the uh, biathlon New Zealand and everyone in New Zealand. And I miss everyone so much and can't wait to come back and, and see all of you. So yeah, thanks for having me. And this was great to reminisce of my past life, I would say.
0: Well, it's a pleasure to have you on, Sarah, on so many levels and kind of reminisce. And yeah, as I said, uh, we uh, look forward to seeing how the Canadians go come Beijing. We may or may not have some uh, more guests to talk about that on the show very, very soon. But uh, it's been a pleasure to learn about your career. New Zealand's uh, only biathlete, athlete and also running over squirrels right at the end there. That's probably maybe my brief highlights just towards the end. And, and being James Bond as well. I mean, James Bond runs over squirrels, clearly, so there you go. More James Bond proof right now.
1: Perfect. Thanks so much. And a big thanks
0: to Sarah for giving us her time there. Fascinating insight. And it's kind of a sport that you don't really associate with New Zealand. And uh, very interesting to see that it was New Zealand's fault, let's say, why she didn't make it to Sochi. I'm not trying to bag out New Zealand, but I, I find it still very interesting that there wasn't a standard there that could be met Uh, given that she was the only athlete ever to compete in that sport. So uh, fascinating, fascinating insight there. And uh, thanks very much to Sarah for her time. Stay tuned. In a couple of weeks' time, we will be revisiting the sport of biathlon So I will just uh, give you a bit of a tease when it comes to that one in about a fortnight's time. Next week, though, our next interview. Very excited for this one. We have another dual interview. Of course, we uh, had a couple of wrestlers on before Tokyo in our first ever dual interview then. But this time around, we've got two curlers joining us, an Australian pairing of Tali Gill and Dean Hewitt, who hold history in the sport of curling for Australia. They finish fourth In the mixed doubles curling world championships back in 2019, the best ever finish for Australian curlers at any international event. It was a big, big deal for Australia to make the semi finals of an event and ultimately finish fourth. So, Tali and Dean are a real prospect of making it to the Olympic Games next year. Never, never has Australia competed at the Olympics in the sport of curling, at least when curling's been an official sport. You'll hear a little bit in this interview next week about Australia's representation when it was a demonstration sport previously in the Olympics. So Talia and Dean on the cusp of creating history And another genuine medal shot. If they do make the Olympics, they are in with every chance of potentially not only creating history as Australia's first ever curlers, but also Australia's first ever curling medalists at a Winter Olympic Games. And it's a great chat. You'll learn a lot about how they got involved in the sport in Australia, just how how limited curling is in Australia, which given our previous interviews with Canadian curlers, where the sport is almost a, a religion in Canada. This is almost the complete opposite in Australia. So, fun chat. You will get a lot out of Tali and Dean next week, so stay tuned for that. In the meantime, if you want to stay up to date with everything off the podium, we're on social media, of course, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram is where you can hit us up. Leave us some feedback. We'd love to hear what you think of the show, and you can do the same when you subscribe to our show on all the podcast channels, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, just search off the podium on any of those, And you will be able to stay up to date with these. And go back and listen to our back catalogue. Maybe you want to go back and listen to some of our previous interviews. I mentioned some of our curlers from Canada before. Maybe you want to go back and listen to all our coverage of Tokyo that you may have missed. Or go all the way back to Rio when we first started. That's our first Olympic Games we covered. And of course, Pyeongchang's in there too if you want to listen to daily recaps of all those. So plenty to keep you occupied when it comes off the podium content. If you're missing the Olympics, it's been a few weeks now since Tokyo, of course, but we've got plenty to keep you covered to really keep you in the Olympic zone. Big thanks to Sarah once again for her time. We will be back next week. My name is Ben. This has been off the podium. We'll speak to you then. Good night.